0: Switching hard. Hey, <laughs> y'all. My name is Jenny, and I am an alcoholic. I've been kept sober since December fifth of ninety-two, and that's my miracle. And it is an honor and a privilege to keep coming back. Um, I'm your holla back girl. I um, I am so excited to be here, and I want to thank the committee and you know all that stuff. But really, like really, this is one of my favorite places to be. Y'all are super fun. I don't have a bucket list thing. I want to sing with frothy emotional appeal. Back up! I don't want. I don't want. I get enough spotlight. But um, for those of you who are watching me over there, I want you to remember that the camera adds 150 pounds. It's my story, and. Um, It's so funny, when I, I, most of them, I think I'm Facebook friends with half the room now, um, because that's what happens when you come to ARR. They add you to their group, and you know their stuff. And um, But it's funny, everybody's Facebook profile picture is what I think they're doing forever. And so I was watching the other speakers, and I'm like, look, they're on a nature walk, you know. And so um, just imagine that I'm walking for the next hour, getting my steps in. I have also... Truly loved the other speakers. I've been fans before this weekend, um, but of course, I love, this is my favorite format, <sighs> to forget out of the way, um, because it always cracks me open. And uh, and I have sat in various places around the room. I don't like to do the speaker front row thing. Uh, I like to be anonymous um, for a little while. And so I've sat in various spots and just wept. Because I got cracked open by some of the things. Did anybody else have somebody maybe get in their hula hoop a little bit? (laughs) That's good stuff. Um, Larcene in particular. Oh, my God. She leveled me. Just. (laughs) Um, And I guess that's a nice transition. Somewhere out there, there is a tissue bearer. And I love you. And I know that you come from a place of love. There will be weeping during my talk. I am the designated weeper. Um, I just cry. It's my default emotion, um, and also my weapon of choice. (laughs) It's just projectile weeping, and um, and I know that there is going to be somebody who feels compelled when they see tears. They're at every meeting. The tissue bearers, and they come bearing tissues, and. um, and I know that they're coming from a place of love, but I truly believe that when those feelings start spilling over, it's a moment when God's entering in. And I don't know if he's coming out or coming in. I don't really care, but it's a sacred moment. And just for me, um, any time somebody comes with their handkerchief, and uh, it, it's, it's, it closes that moment down for me. It shuts it down. And... Um, And I think it's important to let people feel in Alcoholics Anonymous, short of felony, you know. Um, But I think those healing moments need to happen when they happen. And and I'm so grateful that I can feel today. Because I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and feelings were the thing I'd been running from my whole life. It's what I drank to shut down. Because I was just ridiculously feelish. And I didn't know what to do with them, you know, and I can remember when I was a little girl, my daddy saying, I believe there are people who just feel too much, Jennifer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now what? You know, he didn't he didn't have a solution to that. And thank God in Alcoholics Anonymous, you do. Um and I want to talk about all the steps. I always want to talk about all the steps. Um but I'm going to talk about the two I've got, because that's plenty. Um, but I kind of have to take a running start at them so that you know the state that I was in when I came to 8 and 9 for the very first time. Um, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous off a felony. I mean, why would you show up before you had one? And uh, I happened to be a preschool teacher <laughs> who had gotten a felony. Um, and they sort of frown on felons watching your children. Um, It was a felony DWI, so, I mean, it wasn't that big a deal, but, uh, (laughs) but, uh, I was also living at home with my parents, who were school teachers and churchgoers who don't drink at all, um, so I kind of stood out there, and, um, every attorney in Dallas would send a mail to my mom and daddy's house, so I'm having to run get the mail before they do, and, uh, I'm not super focused, um, and uh, and I uh, I went I I was trying to go to an AA meeting. Like well, my moment of clarity sitting in a jail cell was that I probably ought to go to AA. You know, um, I had a moment of grace where I saw myself for exactly who I was and what I was in a, in that moment, and I could no longer tell myself some story about how. It was because of these things that I do this deal and wind up in these situations. For this moment of grace, I could say, I drink because it's the only way I know how to get through the day. And I can't swear to me, God, or anybody else that I won't do it again because I absolutely will. There is no doubt in my mind that I will drink again. And I don't want to. And I know I'm hurting a whole lot of people when I do it. But I've got to have help or else I'm going to, nothing good can ever come into my life and stay. If I keep doing what I'm doing, and um, so then I start trying to go to AA meetings. Any orbiters, I I orbit like I'm still orbiting the on room, like close but not quite in. And um, you'll hear about that later. Um, but I was orbiting AA, and um, and I got I accidentally went to the meeting like at meeting time. <laughs> Huge mistake. And. Uh, I started to get out of my car like the door was open. I was almost in route when the alkalogic kicked in and, um, and I said, wait a minute, you don't have an AA book. You can't be rolling up in the AA meeting with no AA book. So I got in my car and I left the AA group where the AA books live <laughs> to go off on a quest. To find myself an AA book. Keen alcoholic mind. So, uh, I went to the Barnes and Noble to get my AA book. And they have an AA book at the Barnes and Noble. It is expensive. I, uh, this was 1992. It probably cost $4.59. And, uh, I was not really flush at that time. Um, so I left the Barnes and & Noble and I left the AA book and wound up at the half-price books. Now, they do have AA books at the half-price books, too, but those are used AA books, and they got willy-nilly highlighting in them, probably treatment highlighting, and um <laughs> And so I'm looking at this AA book with the willy Neely high, and I'm like, I can't have this. I don't I want some rando influencing my opinions about Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> with their non-systematic highlighting. And um, which led to a three-day quest and multiple half price bookstores to find a clean copy of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, which I could study prior to the A.A. meeting, so I didn't sound new and crazy. That went well. It was while I was reading the book by myself that I drank again. Because I reached a line that I found disturbing. It was something about absolute abstinence, another definition for A.A., And they spelled absolute wrong. (laughs) And I began to ponder the idea of absolute abstinence. And AA, before I had ever visited you, seemed like a bad idea. And so I wound up um, (laughs) going to a bar. Not to drink. Oh, no. I wasn't going to get a sandwich either. But I... um, I was going to the bar for legal advice. And um, (laughs) I I always say, I wish I was kidding about that, but it's true. I I wish I was kidding about that. That is absolutely true. I knew a guy with eight DWIs. He was not in jail. My attorney with my piddly three DWIs had said, you're going to jail, and you're staying for a while. And uh, and I know this guy with eight DWIs who's still drinking at the bar. Here's a man with a real solution. I'm thinking, I don't... I don't want to disturb the members of Alcoholics Anonymous if Jimmy's got a plan. And, um, so I go to talk to Jimmy about his plan, and, um, and you're not going to believe this, but the worst drunk I know starts telling me I might have a problem. And, uh, and I'm really disappointed. Uh, it turns out Jimmy was paying his attorney in cocaine, and, um, <laughs> I didn't happen to have any cocaine, obviously, and um (laughs) so Jimmy said that maybe I might I might need to go maybe this was an opportunity. And I was so angry, you know, when the worst drunk you know starts talking down at you like you need some help. Um But there's a little voice inside of me that's not me, and it just kept whispering, who would know better than Jimmy? And and the other thing that happened that night was that I drank. I drank having made a decision not to drink. I drank knowing what kind of trouble I could be in if I drank. I drank having told other people that I wouldn't drink. And here's the scary part. I get chills every single time I talk about it. Um, I drank and then looked down and realized I had drank. I do not remember making a decision to drink because I I had made a decision not to. I don't know how the drink got in front of me. I don't remember drinking it. I looked down and the glasses were empty and I knew I had done it, but I don't remember anything prior to that. And I realized that I would drink whether I wanted to or not. And so that's why what you said um, resonated so much with me because it wasn't a decision. I drank because I drank. I drank like I breathe. And I knew that I would continue to do that if something didn't change. So I came into AA, and I still didn't have pure motives. I was trying to make it look good for the judge. That's all I was really trying to do. We're, I, it was a regrouping thing, you know. I showed up at AA to regroup. and um, And three things happened. The first was that I sat down in a meeting, and I heard a man explain alcoholism in a way that I could relate to. He said, the more I drink, the thirstier I get. And that begins with the very first drink. And I was a bar drinker, and I studied bar drinkers. And some drinkers can look at their watch and go home. Some people can look in their wallet and go, oh, time to go home. And they go home. It's weird. I've stopped them. I know they actually go home when they say they're going to. (laughs) But that's not what happened to me. I had a plan every single night. And I thought I was changing my mind. And this man explained that that wasn't what was happening that the more I drink, the thirstier I get, and it begins with the very first drink. And a drunk like me will drink more than she should every single time alcohol in any form enters my body because there is a phenomenon of craving. And I became convinced that I was one of you listening to one man share for about three minutes. The second thing that happened was that the people in Alcoholics Anonymous were kind to me. They were kind, and I don't know if that was more important than what the other guy said or equally as important. But I do know that their kindness was so attractive to me that I was willing to consider sobriety in order to keep receiving it. It was your kindness that made sobriety something I was willing to think about, whereas I had not really considered it an option until you were kind to me. And the third thing that happened was I made friends. It was great, like that fast, like bar fast. (laughs) Like within 24 hours, I went to Denny's and I had friends. It was the weirdest thing ever. And I knew you were my friends because you checked up on me, because you knew my name, because you treated me with respect before I was respectable, because you trusted me before I was trustworthy. And I fell in love with that, and I got the biggest, fluffiest pink cloud ever. And if if you've got one of those, surf that bad boy. You are supposed to be excited about a new way of life. You are supposed to be excited about a host of friends. Enjoy it. It's a beautiful thing. And for about a year, I had a big, fluffy, pink cloud. And I got a sponsor because of peer pressure. Because um, if you go to meeting after, meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, eventually they get like they're on to you, and uh, and then they badger, you have a sponsor, get a sponsor, come to the women's meeting, and. Um, But I got one. Um, What I didn't know was that she hadn't worked all 12 steps. And it didn't matter. She had multiple years of sobriety. She got to some steps that she balked at, (laughs) coincidentally. It's the ones I'm talking about. Um, And I'm not judging her. I will forever be grateful to her. She gave me as much instruction as she knew how to. She kept me in AA and she kept me active and being of service until I could hear a message that had depth and weight. She did not do me a disservice. She told me the truth. When we got to the steps she didn't know how to do, she told me the truth. Um, she was of service to the degree that she knew how. And I learned later that no one had ever taught her. There were parts of the inventory that were missing because nobody ever showed her how. And she couldn't transmit something she hadn't got. But um, <clears throat> but what happened around that was I got a I got a chip with a one year on it. And I went out and found me a guy to date. <laughs> Actually, he found me, which is different. And um, he'd been scouting me for a little while. And uh, I didn't know it because I hadn't written a fear inventory and I didn't write a sex inventory. Um, but he knew mm-hmm. some information about my fear and my sex inventory that I didn't. And we went on a date and, um, and he flattered me. And he said the things that I wanted to hear. And about halfway through the date, he said he was uncomfortable because there was alcohol around. And we were both in AA, and we both had sponsors, and I, he said we both were working steps. And so I, uh, he asked if uh, if I would like to go back to his house. And I said, okay, but I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and we went back to his house, and, uh, and he began to um, take some action. And I said, that's not what I want to do. I'm not ready for that. And he said, I'm sorry, I'll stop. And he began to take some more action, and I said, I can't do this. And I grabbed my purse, and I began to leave. And he said something really flattering, and he said that he would stop. And I sat back down. I did not have an opportunity to leave the third time, and there was no confusion about whether there was consent or not. My sponsor had warned me. She just said, be careful. Be careful. There's something about him that makes me uncomfortable. And I didn't listen to her because he had flattered me. And so when this happened, I didn't want to tell her because I was and because I was ashamed, because I hadn't acted or reacted any different than I would while drinking, because I had a one-year chip, and the voices were back telling me but this is just how my life's going to be because I have no worth. And because I don't deserve any different, drunk or sober. And that man continued to come to meetings. And I began to to try and hang on to this secret. And uh, I'm not good at secrets. Like, <laughs> never. And um, thank goodness because um, one of my friends, he happened to be a guy, it doesn't really matter, but he, he noticed that I was not doing well. And he asked me what was going on, and I told him the truth, and my motives were not pure. (laughs) I told him because I wanted him to beat him up. That's what I wanted. But on that day, he was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he behaved like one. And he said, you need to find a woman you can talk to, and you need to work the steps around this quick. Because if you don't, you will drink, and nobody wants you to drink over something that wasn't your fault. And I did what he said. And while I hate the actions that he took, I will be forever grateful because I might still be sitting in AA, pretending I was doing AA, or worse, I might not still be sitting in AA. If I didn't have a situation that showed me I didn't have the relationship with God that I thought I had, and I got a sponsor who took me through the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and we came to a step, we did it, and we did one right after another, after another, after another, because she thought that, this, that my life depended on it. And it did. And these were the steps that I hadn't taken. And I'll tell you that when I worked with her on steps eight and nine, um, I'm fairly certain that all I did was I just wrote down, you know, kind of how I thought I harmed people, and she sort of edited it because I had weird things. I gave him too
1: much power.
0: It's like, how do two powerless people give each other power? How does that even happen? (laughs) Let's look for some new words, Jennifer. I borrowed, and I didn't give it back. Let's try again. There is a word for that. Even Bill uses something goofy like, I can't remember, but it's, it's stealing. But he uses some kind of maybe-ish. You know, it's not really... Dang it, I wish I could remember that. Anyway, it'll come back to me, you know, at 2 in the morning, and I'm just going to shout it out loud. But, um... <laughs> And and so, you know, she edited it, and she told me what to do, and I went out and did it. And the first working of the steps, you know, it talks about cleaning our side of the street or sweeping away the debris. Really, that first working of the steps for me was just, there's a dead tree in the middle of the road. Let's drag that out of the way. There was not any anything very polished about what I was doing. Um, And one of the things that she had me do and to this day, I do not know whether I agree with it or I think it was weird. And I, I can't see me telling a sponsor to do it. But one of the very first amends that I made was to the group. And uh, she had me do an amends to the group because I, in that situation that I just explained, she said I didn't behave as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous should. I? I st- again, I'm going to scrunch up my face because I need you to know I thought that was weird. Um... But I did it. I did it because um, I truly believe that eight and nine, my life depends on it. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't have done any of them. But I did believe that my life depended on it, and I trusted somebody else more than I trust my own head, just for brief and shining moments. And um, my plan was that right before I left that group, because I had decided I, I should leave that group, and I'm not sure that wasn't a solid decision, Um but I had decided right before I left that group, last meeting, swan song, I would do what she told me to do. And I would stand up and I would say, before we close the meeting, you know, during Burning Desire, before we close the meeting I would like to make amends, and I would say the thing that she told me to say. And then, deuces, drop the mic, I'm out. And, um, <laughs> and I'll never show up again and that will be great. And uh, that was my plan. What happened was... Two weeks after I finished my inventory and the eight step and whatever else, I'm at the podium at that group, and uh, it's one of my very first talks. And uh, and I am somebody like I need to tell you, um, I'm somebody who spends about 49 minutes on my drunk-a-log. I never mean to, uh, but you laugh, and um, and that leads to another story and another story, and then uh, you know, I'm trying to cram 25 years into the last. Oh, ten, fifteen minutes. And um but for some reason that night I was talking about each of the steps. I don't even know, but I got to step nine. That thing that my sponsor told me to say came up. I went, oh my god. I guess I'm supposed to do this now. And I'm I made the amends that she told me to make from the podium. And here's where it gets weird. When you're making amends to an entire group, you will receive a mixed Reaction. There were the Cocker Spaniels. There were the opinions. There were the people whose sponsors made them do stuff like that. And then there were the people who just felt awkward and went and got coffee. And, um, but here's the weird thing. After I got done with the talk, I knew I didn't have to leave the group. I didn't have to leave the group. I mean, I did, but I didn't have to. And as a matter of fact, I continued to visit that group, and I began to sponsor a bunch of women at that group. You know why? Because I saw something different. They saw somebody who had the courage to stand up in front of the group and say whatever it was her sponsor told her to. Our whole deportment shouts the new prospect that we are a man with a real answer. I believe that begins with step nine. Because any time anybody as scared and arrogant as me says I was wrong,
1: God's working.
0: God's working. And... um. And so I continued, and I did these awkward amends, but then I, I you know, I'm not a one-and-done girl. I have to work the steps a lot, because I keep trusting my brain, and my brain is really unreliable. Um, and so, um, you know, as I continued to work the steps, I had different sponsors, and they showed me different things. Um, and, and as I, one of the only steps that I really used the 12 and 12 much on at all is the eighth step, um, because the big book says we subjected ourselves to a drastic self-appraisal. And there's a little bit throughout 8 and 9 in there. But um, I needed a little more meat for 8. Because I really need, I believe we need to prepare for 9. And um, and it tells me in the 12 and 12 that the first uh, obstacle that I'm going to come across is forgiveness.
1: Yep, you think?
0: Um, I... Um, the truth is, I walked around, um, and I I had this old idea that forgiveness was like something you were born with. Like, genetically, you were predisposed to forgiveness or not. And um, and I was not. I can remember I had a boyfriend at one point, and he said, uh, you know, he can just get glad in the same pants he got mad in. Now I'm sitting in the truck thinking, he can because um, I have never gotten glad in the same pants I got mad in. Um, I usually go through three or four sizes of pants uh, before I get glad after I've gotten mad. Um, like, seriously, I remember the first time it was less than 24 hours. I was like, oh, this is what they're talking about. Um, I don't even want to talk about how many hours, weeks, months, years I have committed to resentment. Years. Um, and I love the things that we hear in meetings sometimes, um, like, I forgive, but I don't forget. <laughs> Do you hear yourself when you say that? Do you? I forgive, but I don't forget. Let me tell you what I hear when you say that. I hear, we have this process by which we empty out the kitty litter. You have found a particularly delicious cat poop, and you have decided to keep that in your pocket. Did you really forgive? So um, I kind of had to do some work on the forgiveness thing Um, because I'm, I'm really like after the first inventory, hate was removed. Like I, I can't think of anybody. Sure, I probably shouldn't even say this because somebody's gonna go, oh, you hate him. Um, But I don't think I've hated anybody in a long time. Mine is wounded. I don't know about you. I love me some wound. I'm just hurt. Just hurt. They hurt my feelings. You poke my heart. You know, I just walk around with this. I'm not mad. It just hurts. And, uh, (laughs) so I gotta do the forgiveness work. I gotta figure out. And for me, uh, what that looks like is I gotta go back to the four step and I gotta look at that line that says, our resentments, fancied or real, have the power to kill. Question number one is, is my belief even true? Like, can I prove, in a court of law, could I prove my story is for realsy? And a lot of times the answer is, well... I mean, I got some circumstances that we could work with, but, you know, and of course if you've got a sponsor and you tell her about this, she's going to say things like, what is another possible reason this could have happened? So, you know, I begin to explore possibilities. Um, But even more interesting is that, especially at this point in my sobriety, I will know a story is not true and stay committed to it. I hate saying that out loud. I am comforted by how many of you are going... (laughs) Illustration. I had a job, uh, my last job where I had a boss that wasn't me, Um and, uh, and I took this job because it was offered to me in the driveway of my home. I did not have to interview for it, I did not have to write a, a, a resume, I, you know, just, you know to come work for me? Sure, okay. And I went <laughs> off to work for a guy who had a roofing company, you know. Uh, he was a guy who should go to meetings. And um hey no and uh so his job before he was a boss, uh he he ran his dad's car wash. And uh then he started him a roofing company because that's what girls like to do. How many roofers we got in here? But anyway, uh so <laughs> maybe that's just a Texas thing. But um, so he starts this roofing company in Wiley, Texas. Two weeks before the biggest hailstorm that has occurred in Texas for 50 years happens softball sized hail hits Wiley Texas suddenly car wash manager is running a million dollar business oops um, and he doesn't have a lot of leadership skills and he's 25 years younger than me and um and I, you can imagine how delightful I was. Uh, my husband and I both worked there. And, uh, and he's making a lot of money. And did I mention he probably ought to go to meetings, but he doesn't. And, um, and he gets filled with fear and there's a lot of big feelings bouncing around that office. And, um, and I tend to tell people what I think, uh, whether they need to hear it or not. And, um, and at one point, uh, near the end of my career there uh, he invited my husband to lunch did I mention my husband was working there too and uh, he offered my husband my job and um, (laughs) and then sent my husband home to tell me about it imagine if you will (laughs) how swimmingly that conversation went My sweet, sweet big daddy comes in clueless and says, I don't know how to tell you this. (laughs) I mean, Honey Badger loses her mind and I call my sweet, sweet sponsor in, uh, Kentucky and, uh, and she starts laughing which I'm unprepared for. Uh, I have not yet found the humor in this situation. And uh, she says, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to burn something down, is what I want to do. Why do you think I'm calling you? I have a lighter and a set of keys. This is bad. And, uh, and we decided I should probably resign. Sooner rather than later, because I had a lighter and a set of keys. And, um, so we did some inventory work on that thing, and, um, you know, what we discovered was a, a young man in a lot of fear, with a lot of responsibilities and not a lot of skills to deal with it. <sighs> but every time his name gets mentioned at my home, we don't work there anymore, by the way. Nobody works there anymore. I mean, nobody I know. And um, but every time that name gets mentioned, I go. I have to go back through this process. Like,
1: no, that is not
0: Satan. <laughs> that is a young man who is in a lot of fear, who reacted like somebody in a lot of fear, who needs a solution but doesn't have one. And I have to go through this. Because my instinct says, "Hang on to the evil, i the evil, he's evil," and then I just hear my sponsor's laughter. Let sponsor, <laughs> she'll love that. My sponsor. <laughs> That's kind of how she sounded that day. Um, so anyway, I um, it's good. Oh, God, I can't go through all this stuff. There's so much stuff. So now I'm just going to tell you what I do for eight now. I got three things that I'm supposed to be accomplishing with eight and nine. One is to uncover. You know, I'm supposed to figure out where I was wrong. And then I'm supposed to do the best that I can to repair, restore, recreate. And then I'm supposed to get a game plan moving forward so that I'm not repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. And, uh, and for me, the way that I do that is I really, I think eight is the key to becoming prepared for nine. And if I'm not spending some time really looking at this stuff, I'm going to go off half-cocked and I'm going to make some very insincere and incomplete amends. And, uh, I, this really didn't register with me until I received a couple of them. You know, you get an amends where it's like, I'm oh, sorry for, you know, the thing. <laughs> I just want to make amends because First time I met you I thought you were a bitch. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so helpful. To me to know that. Um So what it talks about is, you know, I'm supposed to look for harms and, and it defines what harms are for me. And I've just started doing this in the last couple of years with the ladies I sponsor is the way that we look for harm is the same way we did in our fourth step on the third column. Um, I ask myself, how did I affect my mother's self-esteem, security, ambitions, personal relations, sex relations and pocketbook? How did I affect hers? If I can figure out how they affected mine, I can probably identify some of the ways in which I affected theirs. And I go through the list and I look at how I did that. And for me, it becomes really clear when I look at it in that way that I didn't give you too much power. I was insubordinate. I was disrespectful. I was blaming. I was dishonest. I stole. Suddenly, all those fluffy things that I want to do to minimize don't work for me anymore because I get down to causes and conditions. Here's what I really am like when nobody's looking. Here's how I really treat people, people I say I love. This is how I treat them. You know, um, it says that we take the bit in our teeth, and I think that gets skipped over a lot. Y'all know about bits. (laughs) I'm not doing the directing when I've got the bit in my teeth. I'm not doing the directing. I'm not steering me anymore. And the only reason that I'm gonna surrender at that level is because my life depends on it. He says it over and over and over again. And my experience is that we build up that fourth step as the big hurdle, the big hurdle. I loved what you talked about with stop it right there. Like, I got four out of the way. Whew. And I tell you what, I've seen people who have done that and stopped right there and feel like the work is done, or they tell themselves the work is done. And many of them don't drink. They just walk around AA. <laughs> Forgiven, but not forget.)
1: <laughs>
0: Which is really funny until they attempt suicide. Because they do. They're sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, believing that they've done the work, and they're suicidal, and they're miserable, and they've got those secrets, And they're not happy, joyous, and free. And they don't know it's because they didn't pay back the freaking money. They don't know it's because they weren't willing to sit down across the desk from that employer who did more wrong to them than they did to him. They don't know that the reason that they're still miserable is that they're still valuing their victimhood more than their freedom. And the reason I know that is because I did I did Now, I made my direct amends the way that I was told to, and I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about that because um, I, I love these stories. Uh, well, I love some of them. Um, <laughs> when it was time to make amends to my dad, actually when my, after my sponsor heard my uh, four-step about my dad, she said, we're going to do something called pre-amends. It's not in the book, but you're going to do it. And I said, okay, because that's what you're supposed to say. And she reminded me, you remember you said you're willing to go to any lengths. Any time your sponsor brings that up, pay attention. <laughs> My daddy was a, a football coach. He was a high school football coach and later a, a middle school football coach. And... Um, And we had broken each other's hearts many, many times in the midst of my active alcoholism. And by the time I moved home and finished up my drinking at his house, we could hardly stand to be in the same room with each other. Uh, I was, he was afraid. I mean, the truth was he was afraid and that manifested itself in in control and anger. And I don't blame him anymore because now I know how out of control that feels when you're watching somebody killing themselves, pretending that nobody knows. I thought he was supposed to stay wrapped around my finger, and he wasn't anymore. I thought he could love me well. I thought he could buy me out of the trouble that I was in or fix the feelings that I was feeling. And so we were stuck. And my sponsor didn't feel like we were ready to ma- sit down and, and make those amends. And so she, uh, she said, your dad was a coach, right? I said, yeah. She said, I've got an idea. I want you to watch uh, a season of Dallas Cowboys football with your dad. Now, for some of you, that doesn't sound horrible. (laughs) But there are two things that would make the vein in my father's forehead stick out where you could see the heartbeat. One is Dallas Cowboys football, and the other is me. And so we're going to combine those two things, and I'm going to watch a season of football with my father, and uh, and my dad screams at the TV like they can hear him, and I twitch. I can't stand. I cannot stand it. And um, and so I, you know, and I don't know if you know this, but like a football game is nine and a half hours long. It takes <laughs> forever. And so I would sit, and he would scream, and I would twitch, and at all the commercials, I'd go pace the kitchen, and I'd say, I can't do this, I can't do this. And my mother would say, then don't. And I'd go, I'm willing to go to any lengths to stay sober. And I'd go back in, and I would twitch, and he would scream, and it was awful. It was awful. It was awful. The Sunday night meeting at my home group at the time was um, our big book study. And y'all, I do not care what we read about. Somehow I would tie it back into watching football with my dad (laughs) and how horrible it was. Um, So fun! Now it's funny. Oh, my God. To the wives, let me tell you about watching football with my dad. (laughs) I don't even know when the sponsor came up with this stupid idea. And just it was awful, and it never got better. Like it didn't get better. Like it went on and on, and and then there were Monday night games, fantastic, and um, <laughs> awful, and um, like y'all, I got so desperate, I started praying <laughs> about watch it, like, cause it got to where the pre-dread would start on Wednesday, like Sunday is coming. <laughs> And I'm going to watch
1: football with my dad.
0: And, jeez, um, it was horrible. I mean, like, and I would call my sponsor and go, I've read the whole book cover to cover. There's nothing about football in there. Nowhere. And uh, you want to drink, you want to die, watch football with your dad. And uh, so I get so desperate, I start praying about how do I live through this season. Because he's killing me. He is killing me. I don't like him. He don't like me. We both hate the Cowboys at this point. And um, so I'm praying about it, and an answer came because God answers prayers. And the answer came in the form of queso. I'm in the middle of praying about this football, and all of a sudden, I think, you know what? People eat queso during football. They eat queso. I should make queso. And so that next Sunday, I bought, you know, the crock pot. I've got the slabs of Velveeta. I come out, the game starts. I plop down a crock pot of queso for me and my dad. Two people, crock pot. (laughs) So I maintain my snowman figure. And, um... So anyway, I think I'm precious. Don't come talk to me, but I know. But anyway, uh, so a miracle begins to happen. I'm eating queso. He's eating queso. I discover he can't holler as much while he's eating queso. Now, I only got one tool in my toolkit, so every Sunday I make more queso. Next week, I'm putting out the queso. Another miracle occurs. He reaches behind a couch cushion, throws me a bag of Snickers. It's magic. <laughs> he's eating queso. I'm eating Snickers. I don't twitch nearly as much when I got a Snickers. It really does satisfy. And uh, he's eating the queso. But nothing's ha- like nothing's. Ha- we're not walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe or anything. We're just eating food, which is what we do. And um, so we're nearing the end of the season. I still don't understand what in the heck my sponsor's about. Um, and I was working at the. I, it was my last job in daycare. I, I'm still fairly new sober, and because um, I can't switch jobs because of the felony. So I'm nearing the end of my career with the daycare. But anyway, he, I get a call, and the lady at work says, your, your dad is on the phone. And I said, no, I think that's wrong. My dad doesn't call me here. I don't even think he has the phone number. And he said, no, it's your dad. And um, I said, I, I don't think it's my dad. My dad doesn't call me. And they said, go get the phone. It's your dad. And I go get the phone, and my dad's on the other end of the line, and... He says, uh, what are we gonna do? And I said, I, I don't know. What are you talking about? He said, this is not good. And I started thinking something's happened to my mom. And, um, cause it's the only reason I could think my dad would call me. And, um, and my dad, he says, um, Emmett's hurt. <laughs> sorry, I took you there with me, but um, that was my reaction, too, and by the end of the season, we're both eating stuff and yelling at the TV, And, um, and I never watched another full season of football with my dad. But there wasn't a time when there was a basketball game on or the Olympics, my god, we love the Olympics, when I didn't call my dad and say, hey, did you hear about the pole vaulter or, you know, and we began to repair because I was willing to suit up and show up and sit down and do something I did not want to do. And then I read in the 12 and 12 when it talks about Our twisted relations with other people being the root of most of our problems, including our alcoholism, and I realized that watching football with my dad has everything to do with staying sober. Everything. Now, I did make direct amends, but it was much easier after we had done that work. Um, And we began to heal, and let me tell you why that matters. My dad got dementia. And little by slow, he left us. And I can remember being so afraid of the day he wouldn't know who I was. And I wasn't the daughter I wish I had been. I wasn't. I showed up when I could, and I did the best I could, and I prayed, but I was afraid. And then the day came that he didn't know who I was, and you know what? It was just okay. Cause I have practice in Alcoholics Anonymous talking to crazy people.
1: <laughs> it's
0: kinda funny. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. At my first home group there were lots of schizophrenics who weren't on meds and they were talking to flower pots and stuff and that just became okay and And it's funny, it was kind of easier after that happened than it was when he was in and out. You know, I knew how to do that. But the amends wasn't complete until he was gone. Because then I had to step up. And since I wasn't the daughter that I needed to be for him, I am learning how to be the daughter that I need to be for my mom. see, I knew I was just going to stand here and cry a <laughs> um, couple of years ago, my husband and I moved in with my mom i'd like to say it was a very altruistic thing. We bottomed out financially. it was a train wreck um, and uh that's when I discovered my mom's a hoarder yay, and uh,
1: <laughs>
0: jesus i'm waiting for my- my husband is broken because he you know he's walking around with that i'm the protector and provider and he can't find a job because he's not supposed to be working in the field he's in anymore his body will no longer do what he needs it to do to be a chef and he can't find a job because god has to close that door on him but we don't know that and he's throwing all the will that he's got at it and employers are calling him saying man we're so sorry you're our second choice and i wish they would have said we just hated your guts because that second choice thing was breaking him. And I'm trying to move in with my, my sweet little mother. I think she's quirky about things. <laughs> and, uh, and in the midst of all of this, I realized that we have boxes of, of unprocessed pain. And I cannot be disrespectful to her pain. Because that's what that is. It's her fear and her pain, and I can't toss it out. I have to respect it and so each night I'm trying to, you know, duct tape my husband together and pack boxes and read about hoarding and, um, and then I move in with my mom and everybody gets healthier. Everybody gets healthier. She gets better because she's not lonely and she's not afraid and we get better because we're not stressed out and freaking out about money and, and, um, and things just begin to get better. Um, and I didn't realize it at the time that this was a form of amends, but it was. There was just some unfinished business that we needed to work on together. But I live with my mom. She's my mom. And she does mom things. It doesn't matter that I'm 52. She's still my mom. Um, did you want a bigger bowl for that? <laughs> Mom, if I'd wanted a bigger bowl, for that I would have gotten a bigger bowl. And of course, then on principle, I will use the too small bowl. So we do this dance, and you know she can't stop being my mom. And except she's a peacemaker and she's passive aggressive, it's delightful. I married somebody just like her. So we all speak in sighs.
1: Oh.
0: Oh. So I start saying things like, use your words, mother. <laughs> so now you see my mom in the kitchen going, huh, use your words, Charlotte. She just talks out loud now. Use your words, Charlotte. Jennifer! <laughs> There's stuff in the sink. So anyway, so we're working towards, you know, being kind to mom and including her and figuring out how to have a marriage with your mom there. And um, we sometimes take her on dates with us, which is hardly awkward at all. And um, <laughs> And we play games with friends on Sunday nights, And um, but my mom has non-alcoholic cirrhosis. And um, a woman who never drank has cirrhosis. And it's progressing really, really slowly. Um, they say that other parts of her will run out much sooner than her liver does, which is super good news. But one of the symptoms of that is that she's just a little fuzzy-headed sometimes. And my mom's super bright. She was a teacher, and um, and she's just a really, she's sharp as a tack, but she's slowing down a little bit. And we're playing this game, and she's having trouble keeping up with the game. We've played the game several times before. I think she was just tired one night. And um, and in the midst of playing the game, I'm you know, she's asking a question, and I stamp at her with the answer, and I say, did you sustain a blow to the head? You know, because I'm hilarious. And, um, and let me tell you how graceful my mom is. She didn't say a word. She said, I'm sorry. And she kept right on playing. And then when she was done with the game, she headed upstairs, and I said, Good night, Mom, and she said nothing to me. And my friend said, Good night, Charlotte, and she said, Good night to my friend. And that's when I realized what kind of damage I had done. So I went back to the bedroom, and I told my dad, I told my dad, I told my husband, you know, God, I feel terrible. And he said, Well, I guess you need to make that right. And because I'm humble, I said... Thanks, Captain Obvious. (laughs) Two amends. (laughs) So I made amends to both. And of course she was gracious, because that's what she does. 24 hours later, I get a phone call from her phone, and it's a fireman, and there's been a wreck. And he said, your mother is fine, she just won't get on the ambulance. (laughs) Um, But I don't know what I'm walking into, and um, she's only two blocks from the house. But I pull up and I see that the car is totaled, and the airbags hit her in the face, and, and she's all bruised and cut up. And the whole way there, all I could think about was the thing I said at the table. And how grateful I was that the last thing I said to my mom was not that. It was, I should not ever talk to you that way. I love you, and I appreciate you, and I was wrong. I am so thankful that I have those tools. Now, there are ways to make amends if you didn't get that opportunity. There are And I will tell you my personal experience. I didn't know I was going to tell the story, but I will. It's probably a good place to wrap up. I had a friend named Matt. Matt was just like me. I loved him. I loved him hard. (laughs) Before I ever met Matt, I heard about Matt. Because we really were a lot alike. We uh, drank at competitive pool halls. Because I'm classy like that. And, um... (laughs) And I was at my pool hall and somebody said, have you ever met Matt? You would love Matt. Matt's just like you. And uh, I said, no, I have not met Matt. And uh, apparently other people were saying, have you ever met Jennifer? You would love Jennifer. She's just like you. And eventually we met. And it was delightful. He was so much fun. He's one of my favorite alcoholics I've ever met. Matt would go into a blackout and he'd go get tattoos. And... Uh, <laughs> I, I love this because he'd get drunk and he'd go, I'm going to get a tattoo tonight. I'd say, cool, what are you getting? And he would say, I'm going to get a skull with a knife in his eyeball. You know, it was always this manly crap. And then the next time I'd see him, I'd say, show me your tattoo. He said, I don't want to. <laughs> show me your tattoo. And it would be like a little hobo with a knapsack it would be some Tweety Bird girl every freaking like you knew Matt was in a blackout when he said I'm getting a tattoo tonight good what's it gonna be you know it was always just gonna be some flames and whatever and then it's a cupcake and uh (laughs) God I love that guy and uh and we began to date and you know Alka dating and uh and uh And he was just, I just loved being around him. And he said to me the most romantic thing I've ever heard. He said, I don't know if I'm just messed up or you're perfect. (laughs) And, uh, look, you hear what you want to hear. I heard what I wanted to. But anyway, uh, we we dated for a little while, and and we were too much alike. We had dueling alcoholism, and and uh, and it wasn't good. And and Matt had the wisdom to see that. He he kind of knew that we were going to go down in flames if we stayed together. As a matter of fact, he told me, "There's a there's another man who's in love with you, and uh, and I can't settle down, and I can't marry you, and I can't I can't do that. I know me, but I think he would." And I think you ought to go go be with him. And I and I did. Um, I didn't want to break up with Matt, but that I heard the wisdom in what he said, and and I thought this guy would save me. He didn't. But he got me ready for Alcoholics Anonymous. Matt and I stayed friends. As a matter of fact, at one point Matt moved in with me and my boyfriend, because that's hardly awkward at all. And. Uh, <laughs> It's just how we do things. And uh, and uh, the last night that Matt was alive was the 4th of July. And he was in the bar and he was playing the high roller and he was buying shots for everybody. He still owed me money from the rent, but he was buying shots for everybody else. And I walked up to him and I screamed at him about what a jerk he was and how dare he and... Um, this is how you treat your friends, and all that kind of stuff. And he got mad, and he stormed out of the bar. And he died in a car wreck that night. And the last thing that I said to him was really unkind. And it was hateful. And I was angry. And his death was tragic. And, um, and when it came time to do the eighth step on this, I just kept thinking, there's no way, there's no way that I can ever make this right. There's no way that I can ever know if he's received my amends. How does this even work? And the worst part was that when I came to AA, and I got my big pink fluffy cloud, and I got my first sponsees, and I learned how to do a 12-step, I could hear Matt. I could hear how excited he would be if he found AA. I could hear how he would talk to newcomers. I can hear him saying, check it out, dude, check it out, dude, right here in the book. Check it out, Doctor's the Pigment, check it out. I mean, that's just the way he was, and he would have loved working with new weirdos. He would have
1: loved it.
0: Only our solution seemed worse than his problem. And I missed him so much when I first got sober. I missed him so much because I knew how much he'd love you. But it came time for me to make my amends. and, And my sponsor said, I want you to go someplace that you guys would go. And I want you to do something that you two would do together. And then I want you to just talk to him and say the things that you need to say to him. And so I drove around, cause that's what we did. I drove around and listened to Ski Nerd. And uh, <laughs> and I just talked to him. And I talked to him about Alcoholics Anonymous and how sorry I was he never found you. And how much I knew he would love AA. And I thanked him because I believe he paid for my seat. I believe he paid for my seat. Now, I do what ha- I have to do to keep it, but I believe he paid for my seat. And I told him the thing that I regretted most was that the way that I talked to him the last time I saw him and that I don't think I ever really told him how much I loved him and how important he had been to me. And by the time I was done talking to him, I pulled up in front of the house and I was sitting under the streetlight it was dark, and they had told me that if my um, when my amends was received, that I would know it, that I would get a sign. I'm new, and I'm crazy, and somebody has given me a message. So I'm sitting, sitting under the street lamp, waiting for a ghost to walk. I swear, like I am waiting. There will be a ghost, and I'm crying. And then this cat jumps up on top of my car, and it starts meowing. And I'm like, Matt? (laughs) And then I start laughing. And I start laughing until I'm crying, because I'm imagining that if Matt really could see me... He was laughing really hard. <laughs> and I went in and I went to bed, but I couldn't quite sleep because I kept thinking about that idea that um, that if the, the amends was received, that I would know it, that somehow I would get a message. I was, I was trying to drift off, but my head was eating my face off. I don't know if yours says that to you, but mine did. And, um, and I remembered that Matt was suicidal for the last six months of his life. He kept trying to give away things because he was suicidal. And one of the things that he gave me was an army jacket with his name on it. And I went into the closet, and I got that army jacket, and I put it on. And I was about to fall asleep, and I stuck my hand in the pocket. And um, there was a little construction paper heart in the pocket. And it said, I love you and I don't know where that came from I just know I was a preschool teacher and my medium is construction paper (laughs) and the truth is I don't care where it came from what I know is that the books are settled between the two of us that's what I know I guess I'll tell you one more so that ex-boyfriend that I thought was going to save my life, uh, he had an alcoholic mother and he had an alcoholic girlfriend who later became his alcoholic f- fiance. We lived in a violent home and it was abusive and there was screaming and there was cussing and there was slamming each other against the wall. And I did that. That was not him. That was me. I would wake him from a dead sleep to fight with him. And he would go to any lengths not to fight with me. And I came into AA, the victim, and I was talking about how he abused me and how he abandoned me and blip, 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 blip. And I'm so grateful to the women in Alcoholics Anonymous who told the truth about themselves so that I could get rid of that victim idea because they talked about the 30 minutes before he hit her. <laughs> and when I think about the 30 minutes before he hit me, there's some real pertinent information in there. <laughs> real pertinent. I was the one who was abusive physically, mentally, and spiritually. I was the one who initiated every fight. He tried to leave the house to get away from me when I was that crazy, and I followed him. That's how I did it. And when things got really fun, I would chase him down the street, and I would scream at him about how, I am not your drunken mother. And I was exactly like his drunken mother. And he walked around thinking if he could be good enough, I would stop drinking the way that I was drinking. When I made amends to him, I actually was going to pick up a girl at a bar to take her to a meeting. She wasn't there. He was. And I asked him if he'd come outside and talk to me, and his wife was not impressed with that idea. (laughs) So we sat in a bar, and I sat across from him at a table. And, uh, and I told him the things that I had discovered on my inventory, the ways in which I was wrong. I apologized for my disrespect. I apologized for how many times he had respectfully asked me not to bring up his mother. There were two things that he asked me not to do. I would call him stupid. And he asked me not to bring up his mother. And I loved that man. I loved that man. I wanted to spend my life with him. And I meant it when I said I wouldn't do that until I was mad until I was mad and I'd like to tell you I only did that when I was drunk but that's not true that's not what. That's not true and I told him how much I hated that he had been so kind and so respectful to me and asked me for what he needed and I didn't do what he asked me to do and I asked if there was anything that I left out and he said no And he thanked me, and I got up to leave, and he said, Wait a minute, that's not true. (laughs) Buckle up. Will you sit down for just five more minutes? And I said that I would, and I was prepared to listen. And he said, If you're going to take responsibility for everything you did wrong, then I want you to take credit for what you did right. He said, I never lived in a home before. The house that you made was the only home I've ever lived in, and it was crazy, but it was better than any place I'd ever lived. And because I knew you, and because I loved you, people think I'm funny now. You can't live with Jennifer Huddleston and not learn how to laugh at yourself. And he went on to share some really kind things with somebody who had been physically, emotionally, and spiritually abusive to him. And I left that place thinking, if a human power can show that much grace and forgiveness, imagine how much God loves you. If you're skipping on a mint, you're missing out. Cause even if it's not warm and fuzzy, you get the freedom anyway. You get the freedom anyway. I just have to get out of the way. In the seventh step it says that that pain that humility is the healer of pain. And there is no step that requires more humility than sitting across from somebody we feared. And saying I was wrong. It's my gateway out of hell and into the paradise I get to live in today. I'm glad to be here and it's a good day to be sober.